If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah in Hebrew means the Lord remembers. We're in chapter 8. We're up to verse 14. And what is one of the most wonderful, miraculous chapters of Zechariah as if they aren't all wonderful. Verse 14 begins a section of promise. Even though it doesn't sound like it, it starts out. It says, for thus says the Lord of hosts. So what kind of prophecy are we looking at? In times prophecy, Lord of hosts, Adonai Zavaot, the Lord leading the armies of heaven in Revelation 19.11. He says, just as I determined to punish you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. Boy, that doesn't sound like a promise, does it? But, read on. So again, in these days, the days of Messiah, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. So God says, just as when I brought judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah and would not relent, neither will I relent on my promise to regather Israel back to the land to be her God, to bring back the blessings, to bring back the beautiful crops, to bring back peace and harmony. He says, I will not relent on that either. I will never change my mind about this. I see why it's promise, huh? Verse 16, these are the things you shall do. When God brings back the people to the land in the Messianic kingdom, what do you know about all the people that enter the kingdom? They're saved. They're godly. They're walking uprightly. So he says, this will characterize you. This is how you will be. First it says, speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. How many times does truth appear in that one verse? Twice. Well, if there's a third time, I missed it. Okay, no problem. Why would God repeat a word like that in a verse? Does that de-emphasize it or does that emphasize it? It emphasizes and puts our focus on it. So let's look at the word truth as is being used here. Not Psalm 119 verse 142, the Torah is truth. We know that. You've all made t-shirts with that on it, right? But let's go to Psalm chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. Psalm chapter 15, 1 through 5. Believe it or not, it's a Psalm of David. David, the king of Israel, was also a prophet, as the Lord himself tells us. And this Psalm, I put a big star of David by it. To let me know that this one has some very important things to teach us. Because it's all about who's going to stand in God's presence in the kingdom. Wouldn't you like to know? Yes, here's what the Lord says. A Psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle. What does that word abide mean? To dwell, to be there, to live in his presence. And what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is a dwelling place of God. So the question is, who will dwell with you in your kingdom? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Is that someplace in New York? 
Washington, no, of course, it's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it's referring, the hill refers to a kingdom. It's the Messianic kingdom. Who will be in your kingdom? Number two, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness. What kind of word is that works? A participle, right? One who continues in righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. So these people have put aside lawlessness. They've repented of it. They've turned from it and embraced God in righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. See how that relates back to Zechariah 8, verse 16, who speaks the truth from his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. So verse 2, he's right with God. Verse 3, he's righteous to his neighbors. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. What? You mean it's okay not to love sin and iniquity? But he honors those who fear the Lord. What does fear the Lord mean? Who have reverence for and obedience of the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Remember Japheth in days of old made a vow to God and the first thing that came out of his house was his daughter. Did he then say, well, I'm going to break my word, I'm going to lie to God? No. Did he sacrifice his daughter? No. It meant she went to serve in the tabernacle and remained unmarried. You don't sacrifice children. Verse 5, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. People can look at this and go, no, no, Wayne, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's salvation by works. No, it is not. Why do we keep the commandments of God? Because of our faith, because of our love. It is the obvious demonstration of, the evidence of, our faith and our love for God. So verse 2 really struck home. Who speaks the truth in his heart. Why does he speak the truth? Because he has to. He speaks the truth because he wants to. Because he chooses to. Because that's what is right. We all have a choice in this world. Do you want to choose life or choose death? The one who will abide in God's kingdom forever is the one who chooses it. Because he chooses it. We looked at a couple of hepa'el verbs last night, remember? Walk. In hepa'el, walk means who chose to walk with God. Made a conscious choice. Didn't just happen to be going the same way. But chose to follow God. Psalm 89. I can hear people already thinking he's going to take us to verse 34. But nope, not this time. Though I do love Psalm 89, 34. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Okay, I went there. <laughs> but we need to go to verse 14. What did we know about in verse um, 16 of Zechariah 8? It translated the word as give judgment in your gates. But that word judgment, mishpat in Hebrew, also means justice. It's the same word. So in Psalm 89, 14, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. 
Mercy and truth go before your face. What is the foundation of the Lord's throne? Righteousness and justice. Can you bribe the Lord? No. Can you persuade him that you had a poor childhood and therefore he should overlook your sin? No. And it says, mercy and truth go before your face. We all know what truth is. And to whom does God promise to show mercy? To those who love him and keep his commandments. So does verse 14 say that God will find the guilty of sin innocent? Not unless they want. Repent. Absolutely right. Back to Zechariah chapter 8. Verse 17 is a continuation of verse 16. It says, let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Does this sound like Messiah in Matthew chapter 5? Don't just worry about the letter of the law, but follow the spirit of the law. Even though you don't actually do hurt, don't want to do hurt. Don't think in your heart to do evil. And do not love a false oath. For all these things are things that I hate, says the Lord. Think evil. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 to 5. One of the charges God brought against the children of Israel is that they ran to do evil. They didn't have to be dragged. They were happy to volunteer and go do it. That was before repentance came into their hearts. Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 to 5. The issue is why doesn't God protect us against all evil things? Verses 1 to 5. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. The word save there means to deliver. Nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So if God has not lost the ability to deliver us from outward attacks and evil things, then why doesn't he always protect us? The answer is in verse 2. But your iniquities, that means your lawlessness, has separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Proverbs 28, what? 9. He who turns away his ear from hearing the law, the Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. Isaiah 59, 2 is saying the same thing. You're praying for God to deliver you from the Babylonians, from the Assyrians, from all the Philistines, all your outward neighbors. And he's not doing it. Why? Because you have not repented. You're walking in lawlessness. If you're walking in lawlessness, does God hear the prayers, help me, help me? It says, no, he does not. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood. Oh, how many children have been aborted in this country? 
Just this week, Ohio made a new constitutional amendment to guarantee the right to abortion up to the day of birth. I don't know why they put that limit. Why don't you put it until age 18? You get tired of your teenagers, off with their heads. Also, on the news today, I read that the red states have been losing, losing, losing to Democrats over the past several years right? because of the abortion issue. Yep, because of the abortion issue. Yep. That's one of the primary reasons they didn't want Donald Trump to have a second term, because of his stand on abortion and gay rights. Okay, verse 3, your hands are filled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. What's he talking about there? They're listening to whom? False prophets, false teachers who say, God now wants you to sin. If you hear a teacher or a preacher say, God now enjoys your sin, what should you do? No, change the channel. Okay. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's webs. He who eats of their eggs dies. This is like Messiah saying, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples were going, what, did their bread get moldy? And Messiah is going, no, that's not what that means. And from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. What did Messiah mean? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. What were they teaching the people? Disobey God and follow our man-made rules and regulations instead. Glad that doesn't happen today. How about false oaths? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The words are read. Start in verse 33. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. Is that a true statement or false statement? It is true. That is what the scripture says. But Messiah says, now let's go beyond the literal letters and go to the Spirit. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Those are words that are often misinterpreted. What he's saying is, have a reputation for honesty. Such that when you say yes or no, people believe it. They don't have to make you swear on something that you can't control anyway before they will believe you. That's what he means in verse 37 by let your yes be yes and your no, no. Give an honest answer to whatever is asked. What if it doesn't make you look so good? Change your ways so next time it doesn't make you look so bad. Okay. On to Jeremiah chapter 8. Good stuff is coming. Verse 18. 
Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Oh, again we have the Lord of hosts. End times prophecy. When your hearts have changed, you have repented. You're walking uprightly before the Lord in the kingdom. Walking in righteousness, not lawlessness. I'm sorry, what verse was that? Verse 18. You said Jeremiah, you meant. I'm in Zechariah. Oh my goodness. I'm in Jeremiah on Friday nights. You guys got to watch me. They both end in Ayah. If really, I'm going to have to turn back the tape and erase that part. Oh no. Verse 18. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh, meaning the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth, being the tenth month, shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Does anybody know what they're talking about? There are fasts in the Bible that God did not decree. That the children of Israel decreed out of sadness and brokenness of heart over some of the things that happened. So starting in verse 18, this is the fourth message, that the fast that the people have made for themselves shall become feasts to be celebrated in gladness and joy. So let's talk about what happened. In the fourth month, that's the 17th of Tammuz. The 17th of Tammuz. That's when Babylon breached the walls of Jerusalem. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25. Was Tammuz not a pagan god? Yes. There are two names for every month in the Bible. One is the Hebrew name. And the other is the name that came out of the Babylonian captivity. Tammuz is the name that came out of Babylon, which is why it's named after a pagan god. That's the one that the people still tend to use. In America, we have days of the week. Monday is named after the moon. Sunday after the sun. Tuesday after... It's a Norse god. Yeah. Wednesday after Woden. Thursday after Thor. So all of our weekly day names in America are named after pagan gods. They all are. Okay, we're in 2 Kings chapter 25. I probably didn't even tell you the chapter. I, I'm so easily misled. 2 Kings 25 verses 3 to 4. 2 Kings 25 verses 3 to 4. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden. Even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city, and the king went by the way of the plain. So that's the 17th of Tammuz where the wall was broken through. Don't think it happened on the ninth day of the fourth month. It didn't happen that day. Okay, then we have to look at Jeremiah. This time I really mean Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah chapter 39. Also discussing the breaking through of the walls. Jeremiah 39 verse 2. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated, meaning the city walls were breached. That was the fourth month again. Yep, uh, that's the same one. Oh, okay. Nope, haven't gone to the second one yet. The second one in uh, Zechariah 8.19 is the fast of the fifth month. That's the day the temple was destroyed. Let's go to 2 Kings 25. Do you see why Israel has decreed that the breaching of the walls and the destruction of the temple should be fast days? Because why did those things happen? How did God allow them to happen? Because the people were walking in righteousness or lawlessness, iniquity, and sin. So that's the purpose of the fast is to say, Lord, we're sorry about the sin. 2 Kings 25, verses 8 to 9. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord in the king's house. All the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. But it begins with, he burned what? The house of the Lord, that's the temple. The third one, the fast of the seventh month. That's when Gedalia was murdered. Let's go to 2 Kings 25, verses 23 to 25. I think you're beginning to see 2 Kings 25 is full of disaster, right? 2 Kings 25, verses 23 to 25. Now when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael the son of Netaniah, Yochanan the son of Kareah, Sarai the son of Tanhumet, the Netophetite, and Jaazaniah the son of Machathite, they and their men, and Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael the son of Netaniah, the son of Elishama, the, the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the Jews as well as the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Since the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, when they murdered Gedaliah, how do you think the king took it? Not very well. And in the fourth one, the fast of the tenth month, that's the siege of Jerusalem. Go to 2 Kings 25, starting in verse 1. Verse 1. 
Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. What does the siege wall do? Capsulates the city so people can't come in and out. Where's the food? Out. Where's the water usually? Outside. So if you can't get out to the food and water, what happens to the people inside? They starve and die. So all four of those things have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the children of Judah that were in Jerusalem. And this mourning over the sins that caused these great destructions. Penny, do you have a question? Yes, sir. Is there any significance to the Judean? The first time the word Jew is in the Bible is Second Kings 20, 20, 25, 25. Is there any significance to that? The answer to that is yes. It's after the children of Israel have been divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and that's where this word in the Bible, Jew, comes from, is the people of Judea. It's not talking about a religion. It's talking about the southern kingdom of Judah, those people that are from it. The northern kingdom has been gone for 120 years by this point. So the only ones left are the Judeans that they call the Jews, which is short for Judah. Thank you. Back to Zechariah chapter 8. Verses 20 to 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, where's God's focus? Not on the sins of the past, but on the repentance of the future. Thus says the Lord of hosts. People shall yet come. Inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Does that immediately call three chapters to your mind? Isaiah 2, Micah 4, Zechariah 14, 16. So let's start with Isaiah 2. Because that's exactly what the Lord is promising in Zechariah is that God has not forgotten what he prophesied through Isaiah. How long did Isaiah prophesy before Zechariah? A couple hundred years. Long time. Isaiah chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Starting in verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in thee, what did you change it to? end of days. Hebrew achrit hayamim, the end of days. That's an Hebraic way of saying the messianic kingdom. That the mountain of the Lord's house, what's a mountain in prophecy? A kingdom. So this is the Lord's kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills. That tells you that other nations will still exist. It's not all Israel, but there are many other nations. But Messiah rules and reigns over all of them, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
and all nations shall flow to it. What does the word nations mean? The Gentile kingdoms, the non-Jewish kingdoms. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What's the house of the God of Jacob? That's the temple. He will teach us his ways. Who will teach us his ways? Who's teaching from the temple? Messiah himself. Is he a true teacher? Can we believe his word? Well, what's he teaching? He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his path. That his halakah will follow the word of the Lord. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, the law. Who's teaching it? Messiah's teaching it. Didn't it go away? Obviously not. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. People say, Wayne, how do you know it's not a new law? Well, what does Ezekiel 44 tell us? That the law has not changed. So let's go to Ezekiel 44 for a minute. Because it answers a question Nancy raised a week ago that I'm not sure I answered all that well. Maybe in two weeks ago. I think it was before yesterday. It was a while ago. In verses 23 and 24, God includes all of his commandments, statutes, and judgments. But there are a few that he highlights. Verse 23, And they shall teach my people. Is that the Jews or the non-Jews? Answers: yes, all his people. The difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. So if they're going to keep all of the laws and statutes and judgments, why does God highlight clean and unclean, my appointed times and my Sabbaths? These are the three main things that people today that call them Christians neglect. And why do they neglect them? Because the church teaches them to neglect them. Catholicism in the fourth century said, these things, they look like Jewish things and we hate Jews, so we're not going to be like the Jews. Is that not pretty much the exact words that Constantine used? We hate them guys. Is that a reason to change God's law out of hatred of God's people? No. Let's go to Micah chapter 4. And people say, Wayne, but you already did Isaiah 2. It says the same thing. Why go there? The answer is because it says the same thing. How do we know Micah didn't misspeak? Because Isaiah says the same thing. How do you know Isaiah didn't misspeak? Because Micah says the same thing. Verse 1. Now shall come to pass in the Acherit Hayamim, the end of days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. What does that tell you? They're full of faith. They want to come and learn. Because you can't do what you don't know. So they want to know. So that they can live it. 
He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths from his Zion. The Torah shall go forth, the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And Zechariah 14, 16. Zechariah 14, 16 says, not only are they coming, not just coming to pray, not just coming to worship the Lord, but they're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 14, 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, that's at the Battle of Armageddon. Which nations came against Jerusalem in the Battle of Armageddon? They all did shall go up from year to year to worship the king. That's not Elvis. Who is the king here? That's Messiah Yeshua. The Lord of hosts, in case we didn't know who he was. So the king, who is our Messiah Yeshua, is the Lord of hosts. Adonai Zavaot. And to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Weren't the feasts abolished when Messiah was crucified? Obviously not. It shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Do you realize that's from Deuteronomy 28? That's one of the curses for refusing to be obedient. If there's no rain, what else is there none of? Food. So they're coming. Let me read on. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. Holiness to the Lord. What is that in Hebrew? Kodesh Ladonai, right? Kadosh Ladonai. Is it Kadosh or Kodesh? It's Kodesh. Kodesh is the noun, Kadosh the adjective. So Kodesh Adonai shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar, meaning what? No unclean foods. All clean, all holy to the Lord. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Nothing unclean. Remember Ezekiel 44, 23, and they teach the people the difference between the clean and the unclean. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In the days there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Should not be translated Canaanite. Oops, they made a boo-boo. Should be merchants. Remember how Messiah drove the merchants out of the temple? Unfortunately, in Hebrew, the word for Canaanite, the word for merchant, is the same word. So when they translated it from Hebrew, they just got the wrong word. So will there be people in the temple cheating people when they come up to do the sacrifices? No more. No more sin in the house of God. And now to my favorite verse in Zechariah, chapter 8. Verse 23. Before we read this one, look around the room. You are a fulfillment of this verse. You are prophecy in action. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In times. In those days. Not in that day. 
If it was in that day, it would not have started yet. But in those days includes the time right before the day of the Lord. So this was a prophecy for our day and our time. In those days, ten men, that's a minion, a minion. Remember when Abraham bargained with God, what if there were 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah? The lowest number they got down to where God said he wouldn't destroy it was what? Ten. That's why the children of Israel have come to regard ten men as a minion. Ten righteous people makes a huge power statement before the Lord. Ten men from every language of the nations. Are these Jewish people? No, these are non-Jews. Shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man. It's not sleeve. The Hebrew word is kanaf. Look at the prayer shawl up here, the tallit I'm wearing. The kanaf is the corner. What's in the corner are the zitzit, or fringes, that represent the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So when they grab the seat at the corner of the prayer shawl, what are they taking hold of? The Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So in the time right before the day of the Lord begins, there's a minion from the nations that are going to say, hey, those commandments, they haven't been done away with. And they're not just for Jewish people. They're for all people. They're for us. They're for me. Rash to sleep with Jewish man saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That is, Gentiles who become believers and Jewish believers are going to come together into one body. Just like Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. More and more, the word is spreading. My wife, Becca, loves thrift stores. You probably all know that. And she was at one this week. And I was just wandering around thinking, should get done eventually. I shouldn't have said that on tape. <laughs> but I found a set of recordings on the sale rack from... A charismatic pastor in Ohio by the name of Rod Parsley. I mentioned Rod before. He's the one who said, percolators percolate and Christians like to tribulate, but I'm out of here on the first load. <laughs> but this was a whole teaching series on the, the feasts and festivals of Leviticus chapter 23 and how they teach prophetically the first and second coming of Messiah and how the church needs to grab hold of and take them to heart. Yeah. So by now you found Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11, till we stop. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, meaning you used to be Gentiles in the flesh. What do you mean used to be? What happened when you got saved? You're not Gentile anymore. Gentile means pagan. When you get saved, you turn away from paganism. So if you were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Paul says too many Jewish believers are looking down on the believers that come out of the Gentile world as if they're second class citizens. Paul says that's wrong. 
that at that time, that is before you got saved, you were without Messiah. And we all recognize, right, that that's what unsaved is. You're without Messiah. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth of Israel is the same as the children of Israel in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. But you were not part of that when you were a pagan, estranged from God, without Messiah in the world. And you were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, now that you've been saved, in Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. People say that means near to God. Yes, but it also means near to each other. Being grafted into one, like Zechariah 8, verse 23 was talking about. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. That is, the Jewish believer and the non-Jewish believer are one. Not two different, but one. And has broken down the middle wall of separation. That was done in Acts chapter 10. Where Peter said, God has shown me I should not call any man common or unclean. Why do people teach that Peter said, God showed me I should not call any pig common or unclean? That's not what the word says, is it? No. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Enmity is hatred that separates people. So if you are one in Messiah, you cannot hate each other. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That word ordinances is dogma. It's talking about the man-made rules and regulations that Peter referred to when he said, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to go to one of another nation? That wasn't God's law. That was rabbinic. And Messiah abolished that in his flesh. So he's created himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That is what we're talking about in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. Yes, sir. Yeah, if you read it good and loud. Alright, well you can repeat it if I'm talking too too quietly. It says the meaning of this passage talking about Zechariah 8.23. The meaning of Zechariah 8.23. Uh, the heathen should apply themselves to the Christians. The heathen should apply themselves to the Christians. Particularly to Christian pastors and ministers. Particularly to Christian pastors and ministers. For instruction. For instruction. To, in order to qualify themselves for admittance into the church. In order to qualify themselves for admittance into the church. Did that have anything to do with Zechariah 8.23? Nothing at all. So if you go read just a standard commentary, it's going to lead you astray. I have listened specifically to teachings this past week on 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 to see how traditional Christian pastors deal with those two verses. And normally the way they deal with it is to go, now, ha, 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 there are those out there that say we should keep God's commandments. How stupid is that? Rather, what it means is just ignore this and follow church doctrine, which tells you that. So the teaching is ignore the word of God. And do what I say instead. Sounds like 
Jesus confronting the Pharisees. Does it sound like Jesus confronting the Pharisees? Exactly. Yeah, okay. Let's go on to Zechariah chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord. The word burden in Hebrew is masah. And it means a prophecy that hurts the heart of the prophet to give it. He does not enjoy giving this prophecy. Against the land of Hadrach. Hadrach is Syria. Syria. Where are the forces of Russia, Iran, and Turkey right now that are threatening Israel? They're in Syria. On the other side of the Golan Heights. And Damascus is its resting place. Give me a chapter in Isaiah that's all about Damascus. You may as well enjoy it now because it's going bye-bye. <laughs> Isaiah 17. And it's going to be destroyed in an evening, overnight. One of the prophecy teachers I was listening to yesterday said that Iran is behind what's happening in Gaza in Israel. And we all go, yeah, we knew that. But he said they have four purposes. The main one is to get people's eyes off their building nuclear weapons. News is so focused on Gaza and the war between Israel and Hamas that they've stopped covering the Iranian nuclear developments. And that before people know it, there are going to be nuclear weapons in Syria aimed at Israel. If they store nuclear weapons at Damascus and Israel hits those, would it spread nuclear material all over Damascus? And make the place so full of radiation become inhabitable? That's how Isaiah 17 could possibly be fulfilled in the very near future. Okay, at any rate... The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach, that's Syria. And Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. What's that parenthetical mean? Israel cannot handle all the threats that are coming from Russia, Iran, and Turkey, right? God's going to have to intervene. So at some point in time, Israel's going to stop saying our Israeli defense forces can handle whatever the world throws at us and are going to have to get on their knees and turn to God. And what's God going to do when Israel repents and turns to him? Yeah, let's look at Zechariah 14, verse 3. Yeah, just think raiders of the lost ark. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So what about those nations that are trying to destroy Israel? What's God going to do? He's going to destroy them. Does that mean at the same time that God is going to destroy every false religion all over the world? Yes. So we're talking... Jehovah's Witnesses, we're talking the Mormons, we're talking Muslims, we're talking Buddhists, we're talking any false religion all yep. over the world. When the Lord returns, all the unsaved will perish. 
Anyone who survives will have repented and turned to God with a true faithful heart. So back to Zechariah chapter 9. Oh, I said first, be sure and read Isaiah chapter 17. But you guys are familiar with that, right? Yeah. The one about Damascus, that's right. So let's go on to verse 2. Verse 2 says, Also against Hamat, that's upper Syria. Hadrach is lower Syria where Damascus is. Hamat is the northern part. Do you realize when, when you're standing on the Golan Heights at Harbin Tal, which is one of the peaks, you could see directly into Damascus. You don't need binoculars. You can see it. It's that close. I've heard people say, I could throw a rock and hit it, but I think they're exaggerating just a little bit. But it really is so close. Now, wasn't Abraham from that Syria? Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees, but he st- settled for a while in that part of Syria, which was called what? Padan Aram. Padan Aram. The Hyksos who ruled Egypt when Joseph went down into Egypt were from Padan Aram. They had overthrown the native Egyptians. So when Joseph went down, the rulers of Egypt were cousins, descended from Abraham and the people that he left there in Padan Aram. When it says in Exodus, there arose a pharaoh that knew not Egypt, the Coptic Egyptians overthrew the Hyksos and regained control of the nation. And now here you have their cousins, large enough to make a big army up in Golan. And that's why they put um, Israel into such harsh slavery and tried to kill all the male children. Because the females weren't used as soldiers back in then. So if they they killed all the men, there wouldn't be any soldiers. Okay. So Hamat is northern Syria all the way over into Lebanon. Which military group do you keep hearing about in Lebanon? Hezbollah. Hezbollah. What does Hezbollah mean? It means the army of Allah. The army of Allah. So this prophecy is against Damascus in Syria and all the way over into Hezbollah. Which borders it? And against Tyre and Sidon. Where were Tyre and Sidon? Lebanon. Though they are very wise... So they're what? Very wise. The reason it says that is they were so arrogant, they thought because of their great wisdom, they could never be conquered. Tyre and Sidon even went so far as to say, even the Lord himself couldn't destroy us. Uh, Yeah, never say that. (laughs) Never say that. So verse 3 says, For because Tyre, that's today Lebanon, but it's over at the Mediterranean Sea, pokes out into the sea, built herself a tower. What's a tower? What's that refer to? A a military tower, a tower of defense. So they're saying they built themselves up a military they could never be conquered. Heaped up silver like the dust. How do they get so wealthy? What's that? Besieging places, but primarily through shipping, trade. 
They were the Phoenicians, the master sailors that took everybody's goods here, there, and everywhere for a cut of the profits. And wherever they took goods, they took purple robes and all kinds of things. They also took pagan idols everywhere they went. So they spread idolatry all over the world. And gold, it says, like the mire of the streets. Behold. What's behold mean? Some importance coming, right? Listen to this. The Lord will cast her out. Talking about Damascus and over into Hezbollah. They think that they are the destruction of Israel. That Israel is so concentrated down in Gaza that they will leave the northern border open and we will just sweep down and push them into the sea. What does God say? You want to cast Israel out? You're toast. I'll cast you out. He will destroy her power in the sea and she will be devoured by fire. Did this happen historically? Yes. Will it happen again in the future? Yes. In which book does it say what's happened before will happen again? That's Ecclesiastes. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 26. Ezekiel chapter 26. Starting in verse 3. Ezekiel chapter 26, beginning in verse 3. Let me give a chance to find it. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Tyre. And will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its ways to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. Bear, right? It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. Do you spread nets on rocky hilly terrain or in a nice smooth plain for I have spoken says the Lord God it shall become plunder for the nations also her daughter villages which are in the field shall be slain by the sword for they shall know that I am the Lord so they had built that great military tower right there by the ocean. They said nobody could possibly come and conquer us. And the Lord says, yeah, you just wait and see. Go down to verse 19. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city, like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you, then I'll bring you down with those who descend into the pit to the people of old. I'll make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth, in places desolate from antiquity, with those who go down to the pit, so that you may never be inhabited, and I shall establish glory in the land of the living. Ooh. Are they going to get it? Yep. I'll make you a terror, and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. Mm. 
Is that talking about complete and total destruction? You know it. Go to chapter 27 of Ezekiel. Sounds like Sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah. Same, same ending. Yeah. Ezekiel 27, verse 33. Why is God so upset with Tyre and Sidon? When your wares went out by the sea, that's their trading, you satisfied many people. That is, you took them all kinds of things they needed. You enrich the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. Well, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Yeah, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 34, but you are broken by the seas and the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. Their kings will be greatly afraid and their countenances will be troubled. The merchants among the peoples will hiss at you. You'll become a horror and be no more forever. Because what did they take with the wares? They took the idols. What, was, what were the two biggies that were worshipped in what is today Lebanon? Baal and Asherah or Ishtar. That's two names for the same one. That's where Jezebel comes from that brought Baal worship down to Israel. They took Baal worship and Ishtar worship all over the world. It's Veterans Day. There's lots of stuff going on out there. Yeah. Ezekiel 28, verses 18 to 19. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. By the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth. In the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples. Are astonished at you. You become a horror. And shall be no more forever. And of course I left out the most important verses. Starting in verse 12. It explains. The power behind Tyre and Sidon. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. It's not talking about the man. It's talking about the forces behind the throne. Say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Ooh, who's he talking about? Satan. Satan. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. So Satan is the power behind Tyre and Sidon. He's the one sending Baal and Ishtar worship throughout the world. Baal and Ishtar worship is what? It's the sun god worship. 
sun god worship. Now let's look at Psalm 83. How do I know that the destruction that happened thousands of years ago is not the end of that prophecy, not the end of this story? Psalm 83, verses 1 and following. It's a psalm of Asaph. The scripture tells us specifically that he was a prophet. It says, Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. What's a tumult? A noise. A noise. What kind of a noise? A good noise? A happy noise, like a birthday party. No, it's like a riot. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They've taken crafty counsel against your people. What people is he talking about? He's talking about Israel. And consulted together against your sheltered ones. They said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Are you reading the newspaper? Am I reading the newspaper? It sounds like it, doesn't it? Verse 5, for they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. Literally, it says, they cut a covenant against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia, and the inhabitants of Tyre. Tyre was to be destroyed, never again to be inhabited, which means what? That's yet to come. It's still there at this point. Assyria has also joined with them. And oh yeah, that's the main issue in Zechariah 9, isn't it? Assyria and Tyre and Sidon. Assyria has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Selah. So yes, they're part of the Psalm 83 war. And that's when they're all going to get totally destroyed. Yes, ma'am. Who children of Lot? Children of Lot are Ammon and Moab. <coughs> in Jordan today. And what's 75% of the population of Jordan? Palestinians. So-called. The nation of Jordan, do you realize is not called the nation of Jordan? It's called the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. The Hashemites are different from the Palestinians. So they are a minority of the country, but they are the leadership. They claim to be the direct descendants of Muhammad, which is why the king of Jordan has administrative oversight of the Temple Mount as Muhammad's descendant. Now, you see on the news, um, a lot of people, fly, a lot of uh, Hebrews flying in you know, to Israel in spite of the war, in spite of the difficulties, because they're fleeing you know, the persecution. Right. So, to me, it seems like you know, we're kind of getting ready for this expansion that's going to come. Yep. What does the Psalm 83 or end with? Israel expands out its borders. Don't you look forward to that? Yes. So, so, verse 4 said, Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be destroyed by fire. Let me tell you the things that have happened historically. 
that tried to fulfill this verse. Number one, the Assyrians laid siege against Tyre for five years and then gave up. How do you lay siege against a city with borders all around on the Mediterranean Sea? Number two, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon laid siege for about three years, but was unable to take Tyre. They were too strong. Do you see why Tyre got an attitude of we can't be defeated? Assyria failed. Nebuchadnezzar failed. Third, Alexander the Great, or as I call him, Alexander the Mediocre, laid siege for seven months, then finally gave up and went home. He said, this place cannot be conquered. You know what God said? Oh, yes, it can. Just watch me. Verse 5 is about Ashkelon, Ekron, and Gaza. All of which are in the Gaza Strip today. There's Gaza City, there's Ashkelon, there's Ekron. That's what makes up the Gaza Strip. What's that? I am. Zechariah 9.5. I'm so sorry. I should occasionally tell you where I am. You're right. Let's see. Somebody says, did you see where Saudi Arabia has called for a meeting of surrounding nations for dealing with the issues of Gaza? The answer to that is yes. Saudi Arabia believes they can bring an end to this and guarantee peace to Israel at least for seven years. So there are prophecy teachers out there going, watch what Saudi Arabia is doing. It's not being advertised in the news, not being talked about a lot, but they could be negotiating for the treaty of Daniel 9, verse 27. We'll just have to watch. Daniel 9, 27, you said, what's that? Let's go look. Daniel 9, verse 27. Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27 are about 77-year periods. They are not necessarily consecutive, and 69 of those 77-year periods have already been fulfilled. There's one seven-year period left, and that's verse 27. Then he, he is the false Messiah, Antichrist, or beast of Revelation 13, shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven-year period. But in the middle of that seven-year period, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So that seven-year covenant allows Israel to rebuild the temple and begin the worship of God again. In about three and a half years or so in, he's going to say, now you stop that. You worship nobody but me. And he sets himself up in the temple of God, showing that he is God. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the false prophet who assists him sets up an image in the temple that is the abomination of desolation. Now, we won't be here for that. We will not be here for that. We have to watch it on TV. <laughs> Probably we'll be looking over a cloud watching what's going on. Actually, I don't think so. I think we'll be sitting in detention going, Olive, Bait, and Gimel, Dalit, Hay, and Babad, Zayintu. Okay. <laughs> And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. That's the idolatrous image of the false messiah that 
the false prophet makes see and speak and causes people to be killed if they will not worship the false messiah until the consummation that is until the seven years are complete and the battle of Armageddon takes place and then the false messiah and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire where they get to pick the best places by themselves I have here in my notes Matthew twenty four fifteen. Matthew twenty four fifteen. when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place that's the abomination mentioned right here in verse 27 so let's turn over to Matthew 24 because Messiah refers back to this verse amongst others. Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place. So the holy place is the temple. There will be this abominable image that the false messiah will have set up and when they see that it says whoever reads let them understand that let those here in judea flee to the mountains why because what follows 30 days after the abomination desolation is set up satan is kicked out of heaven and dwells the false messiah and the great tribulation is on you don't want to be a jewish person in jerusalem when the false messiah is personally indwelt by satan if you think people don't like Jewish people around the world now, they say, is the holy place also the holy of holies? The answer is yes. Okay. So will it be set up in the holy of holies? I think it will be set up in the temple. Yeah. Well, actually, if the people can see it, it can't be in the holy of yeah, holies. Unless they have removed the veil. So the scripture is not specific enough for me to tell you exactly where they put the image. I think it's going to be in the front part, but I think the back part's going to be open because the false messiah is going to sit in the back part in the Holy of Holies. So it may be sitting there exactly by the mercy seat. We'll, we'll see. They'll have cameras on it. They will have cameras on it. You can bet on it. Okay, so verse 5 of Zechariah 9, not Jeremiah, Zechariah. Ashkelon shall, she, shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. Which means that this current operation in Gaza is not going to abolish the Gaza Strip. I thought Ashkelon was part of Israel. It's one of the old Philistine cities. Yeah. Isn't there an Ashkelon that's not Israel? Mm -hmm. But today, okay. Yeah. But it's very, very close. Yeah. If something, yeah, it's close. If something nuclear went off in North Gaza, Okay. It probably make Ashkelon not habitable for a while. My translation under Gaza, th that first, second um, thing said, Gaza writhing in anguish. Which they're doing now. Okay. <laughs> Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So my point was that Gaza Strip is not going to be entirely obliterated. 
Israel's purpose is to destroy Hamas, not Gaza. Gaza will be here for the Psalm 83 war, and that's when it's going to be totally destroyed, and Israel's going to expand the borders into that territory. And we're, we're taking this as if it's future prophecy, but could this not have been fulfilled more than once through history? Oh, absolutely. So That's like, what I meant by Ecclesiastes. What's happened before will happen again. Yeah, so th that, whole, that whole area has gone through turmoil for quite a while. Yeah. So these things aren't just going to happen at the end of time. Yeah. They, they keep happening because the battle keeps going on back and forth. Yeah. If you remember history, for some of us it's, well, we were around, but for others, remember history. When England pulled out of, quote, Palestine and gave it the Palestinian mandate, do you remember why? They were so tired of being attacked by the Palestinian terrorists. And they gave control of most of those Palestinian, quote unquote, lands to the Jordanians. And when Israel captured what they call today the West Bank in the, the war with Jordan, Jordan didn't ask for the land back. Because they were tired of being attacked by the Palestinian terrorists. It's not that the Palestinian terrorists just hate Israel. They hate everybody. Yeah. In fact, there are even battles going on down in Gaza today that are other Palestinians fighting Hamas. Maybe a, you remember when Yeshua sent a legion of uh, demons into a herd of pigs? Herd of pigs, yeah. I wonder if those same, and de same demons are not in those Palestinians today. Scripture simply doesn't say what happened to them, does it? We wonder about demons, but those people are acting yeah. way beyond anything a rational person would do. True. It's demonic. Didn't Moses say one of the last things Moses says was beware the Amalekites? The Amalekites. Yeah. Yep. I mean, isn't that the same? Yep. That there will be war with the Amalekites until the Lord returns. Yep. Somebody sent me an article this week that there's a particular drug being given to the Hamas soldiers. That. Yeah. Okay. So you guys have heard of it. Let's look at the book of Amos chapter 1, which goes right along with verse 5. Amos is to the left of Zechariah. Right before Obadiah, if that's helpful. Amos chapter 1. Right after the book of Joel. Amos chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Oops, I got a comment out here, a question from GoToMeeting. Let's see. Verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. Edom is Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. 
But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Another of these multiple fulfillment prophecies. Back to Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 6. For some reason, they translate this verse, I, I want to say uniquely, but what I really mean is poorly. It says a mixed race. It's not mixed race. The word in Hebrew is mamzer. It means illegitimate children. So illegitimate children shall settle in Ashdod. And it will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I think the reason they're described as illegitimate children is they claim that the land of Israel belongs to them because they're descendant from Esau. And Esau had his birthright stolen by Jacob. Did Esau have his birthright stolen by Jacob or did he give it away for a bowl of lentil stew because he what? Despised his birthright. But his descendants say, oh, that's not the way we've heard it. Yes, Edmund. Um, just a little thing on, on Mamza. It happened, um, I got caught up in a discussion um, about the status of Timothy. Uh, is he a Mamza or isn't he? I say no. I say You'd people say may no. say that because his mother was Jewish and his father was not. That's right. But yeah. that doesn't make him a momser. He's not a momser okay. is a child of an illegal marriage, one that God prohibits, like brother and sister, something like that. Or a child of fornication. Or a okay. child of fornication, one that, from a relationship that God forbids. Our, our culture is trying to I mean, I, I thought... Go ahead, Emmons. I thought there was a problem with it because... Um, the, the person was taking the line that uh, he would have been sort of not acceptable in that community. And yet the scripture says, um, before Paul comes along, that he was uh, known in and well accepted in both, in two places. Yeah. So I thought, well, they can't have rejected him, as it were. You're right. But you know what? Anybody can write a book or an article. Doesn't make it right. Unless, of course, it's on the internet, then it's always correct. No, we know better. Historically, Alexander the Great got rid of all the Philistines and repopulated it with Esau's descendants from the Amalekites. Yeah, Philistines are gone from history. Back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 7. I will take away the blood from his mouth. What does that mean? Did the pagans actually eat and drink blood? Yes, they did. Does God permit us to eat or drink blood? He does not. And the abominations from between his teeth. So the unclean foods, 
the food sacrificed to idols, the food where the blood hasn't been drained. You know, if animals are unclean, like pigs, shrimp, lobsters, the Bible would not consider them food. Because food is that which you can eat. And if God forbids it, then the scriptures would not call it food. But when it says, I'll take away the blood from his mouth, the abominations from between his teeth, this is saying that the remnant in Gaza is going to get saved. They're going to repent from their idolatry. They're going to repent from their abominations and their uncleanness. It says, but he who remains, even he shall be for our God. And should be like a leader in Judah, an Ekron, like a Jebusite. So when God is finished with Gaza in the Psalm 83 war, and Israel has pushed out its borders, those that remain will be believers and will serve the true and living God. Ready for verse 8? I, who's I? God, will camp around my house. What's his house? He's talking about Israel. And specifically, the temple. Because of the army. It means that God will defend Israel. Because of him who passes by and him who returns, that is from all enemies, foreign and domestic. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. So when the Lord returns and defeats the enemies of God at the battle of Armageddon, he will take up residence in the temple. And then what does Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 say? The nations will what? Learn war? No more. God will be the defense and God will defend his people. Is God defending Israel right now? Yep. Yep. But not to the max he could because out of this will come much repentance. But God will make sure Israel prevails in the Psalm 83 war. God himself will defeat Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38. And Messiah himself will return and defeat the armies of the world at Armageddon. And then will take his seat in the temple and messianic kingdom. And he's saying right here, you will never have to worry about another invading army. You'll never have to worry about another Hamas invasion. No more rockets being fired. It, yes, ma'am. Thank you. You saw on one YouTube that said? Angel in Gaza. Angel in Gaza. Yep. That there are miraculous things happening. They were told, run now, and they did, and then the place blew up. The angels of God are not asleep. And God is definitely with Israel, just not in the fullness of the protection that is to come. 
Do we think those saved will be those Palestinian Christians who come to faith? Possibly the answer is yes. Um, don't we see the nations of the world turning against Israel even right now? Don't we see the nations of the world turning against Israel right now? Absolutely. Right, you really need to cease fire. You really need to give them a three-day pause. You really need to do this so that those and poor people don't suffer. American leadership has wish, wishy-washed back and forth, back and forth. And now it's turning to the point of, hey, you're going too far. Hey, you're doing too much. Hey, slow down. Hey, yep. don't do that. Yeah. And that's always been the case. And Netanyahu's position is, no. I'll think about a ceasefire once we get the captives back. But we're not going to let them keep those that they kidnapped and say, well, it's okay, let's just end this. What's the old expression of the U.S. military? No man left behind. They have hundreds of people that are captive, being raped and assaulted and murdered. And the United States is saying, hey, Israel, just let them have them. Just let them have them. And Netanyahu is saying, not in your life. If they want to end this, give us the hostages back. What I was going to say and then decided I wouldn't, but, you know, I'm going to anyway, so I may as well. Jordan has asked the United States to provide them with air defenses because some of the rockets that the Houthis fired at Israel didn't make it to Israel and fell in Jordan. And Jordan's going, hey, wait a minute, somebody's got to protect us from these terrorists. Okay, back to Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Is that talking about the girls running around Israel? No. Yes. No, no, no. The daughters are the unwalled villages. Zion is Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a great big thick wall. And the daughter villages are Bethany, Bethphage, and Bethlehem. And whenever invaders would come, they would run into the great walled city of Jerusalem for protection. That's why they're called daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Yeah, Zion and Jerusalem. Yeah. Behold, your king is coming to you. I wonder what king they're talking about. Well, listen to this. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, Zechariah 9 kept putting her focus on what period of time? The day of the Lord. So now we're talking about here comes the Lord. But this was his first coming. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 9. Let me tell you a little bit about Middle Eastern history. If a king was coming in peace, he came on a donkey. If a king was coming for war, he came on a horse. Messiah's first coming, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. In Revelation 19, when he returns, he's coming on a horse. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> now when they drew near Jerusalem came to Bethphage, that's one of those daughters, one of those unwalled villages. 
The word Bethphage means house of unripe figs. Remember that fig tree Messiah curses just a few hours later? Because it's put forth its leaves, which means it's bragging that it's full of fruit and there isn't any fruit. Does that surprise the Lord? No. When he comes to the Mount of Olives, he always stays at Bethany, except this time. He stays at the house of unripe figs because he knows that Israel is not ready for her king. At the Mount of Olives, then Yeshua sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village and opposite you. What village is that? Bethany. Who lives at Bethany? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you'll say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. He's probably talking about Lazarus, the one that he raised from the dead. And if somebody said to Lazarus, hey, the Lord needs your donkey, what's he going to say? Yeah, take it away. Take it away. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. The prophet was Zechariah. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, you've got to picture this in your mind. It would not have been unusual, God bless, you, to, God bless you, to see somebody ride on a donkey. But he's riding on a donkey and the colt. Which means they're together and he's sitting across them. Is that something you see every day? That's something you would go, oh, the prophet told us this was going to happen. So they would recognize it. So tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Yeshua commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. Not on one of them. That means they're together, side by side, and he's got one leg over one and the other leg over the other. Which means... They're skinny little colts, right? And skinny little donkeys. Verse 8, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What are they recognizing? That this is the coming king prophesied by Zechariah. They recognize the prophecy. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! In Hebrew, Hoshiana, save us please, to the son of David. The son of David was a preferred term for the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's that? Baruch Hashem This is two chapters before Matthew 23. Between chapter 21 and chapter 23, the, the chorus changes from save us please to crucify him, crucify him. And he says, you'll see me no more till you say, like you did before, here comes our king. When you recognize that he is Messiah, he's the king. Hosanna in the highest. Go to John chapter 12. 
John chapter 12. Starting in verse 12. John 12, 12 through 16. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem, what feast are they at? They've come to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which includes Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits. They took branches of palm trees. That's a reference to tabernacles, God dwelling amongst us, Emmanuel. And went out to meet and cried out, Hosiana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Matthew didn't call him the King of Israel. In that phrase, he said, Hosiana to the highest. John includes the phrase, the king of Israel, that the people recognize this is our coming king. So why then, a day or two later, they cry and crucify him? Because they believe the ruler, the religious ruler. Yeah, because it's a different group of people. These are the common people. And those crying crucify him are those with the political people. Yeah. Not the same people. Verse 14, Then Yeshua, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So John doesn't include all the details Matthew has. They're written to different audiences for different purposes. Matthew is all about Yeshua is the promised son of David. That's written specifically in Hebrew to the Jewish audience. Mark and Luke have different audiences and different purposes, but John is unique. He's the one that's not synoptic, meaning he doesn't cover most of the same material. But John's purpose is to say Yeshua was not just a man. He was not just a Jew. He was not just a rabbi. He is God from all eternity. So John focuses on eight miracles as well as specific prophecies that are fulfilled in Messiah that help us come to that conclusion. Okay, so Zechariah 9.9 is about the first coming of Messiah. In the first coming, he came on a donkey. When he returns, he comes on a horse. So speaking of horses, let's go back to Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 10 is about the second coming. I still have people that complain about this. How can God separate two verses by 2,000 years? The answer is he doesn't have any problem at all doing that. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. He's going to destroy the armies that have come to invade. We call that battle Armageddon. He shall speak peace to the nations. The nations that survive do what? They come up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. 
His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Means what? Everywhere. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. Let's go back to Isaiah 2 verse 4. That's where he cuts off the armies. Isaiah 2 verse 4. I would say so. And remember, Israel's boundaries are going to have been pushed out to the Euphrates. So everything on the other side of the Euphrates is outside. Isaiah 2 verse 4, He shall judge between the nations. This is where he speak in peace. And rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Peace to the nations. Then I say a chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. What did it say about his kingdom being around the world forever and ever? Let's see, I have a chat out there where you're turning to it. So him riding the donkey in the cult indicates the first and second coming? No. Riding on the donkey in the cult was at the first coming. That cult is the cult of a donkey, not a horse. So that was verse 9. That's the first coming. It's verse 10 that is the second coming. So Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 8 says, For unto us a child is born. That's the first coming. Unto us a son is given. That's the second coming. 2,000 years between those two phrases. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. What's that mean, Wonderful Counselor? If you listen to the words of the Lord, is that not a wonderful thing? Does he lead you in the ways of righteousness? Mighty God, El Gabor. The word mighty doesn't just mean mighty. It means a mighty soldier, a mighty warrior. So he is the God who leads the armies of heaven to great victory. Everlasting father is mistranslated. It's father of eternity. It's a word pair. Avi Ad, Father of Eternity, means that he was before all things and created all things. And in Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. What's that mean? Once he takes the throne in the millennial kingdom, he continues to reign forever and ever? Yes, that's what it means. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this means it's not um, resting upon your and my ability to bring it about. God's going to bring it about. And who can keep him from doing it? Nobody. Back to Zechariah 9, verse 11. Ooh. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That waterless pit represents exile means when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom, he's going to regather Israel 
from all the places they've been scattered around the world. That's referring back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. So let's go back to Isaiah 11, 11. Hey, today is 11, 11. How about that? I doubt that they have anything to do with each other, but... In fact, we're going to start in verse 10 so that we know exactly what time period we're talking about. After talking about the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the children leading the wild animals down the street, etc., verse 10 says, And in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. There shall be a root of Jesse. Who is that root of Jesse? That's Messiah. That means that Messiah came before Jesse, even though he's the offspring of Jesse. That's because he's the Lord from all eternity. Who shall stand as a banner to the people. This word banner is a military banner that's the rallying point. Those of us who served in the military know when the trumpet blows, you run out of the barracks and where? You go to your guide on, you go to that banner, and you assemble on that banner. So Messiah is this banner, and we're going to rally to him. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place, Hebrews 4.9, his Sabbath rest, shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. That is, those who survive the tribulation period. From Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam, that's Persia, or today Iran, and Shinar, Babylon. From Hamat in the islands of the sea, he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In other words, who's he calling the saved from which? The Jewish nation or the Gentile nations? Both. Both. He's calling all the believers to come worship him. Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Ephraim refers to the northern kingdom, Judah to the southern kingdom. Ezekiel 37 says he's going to put him back into one nation. And they will not hate each other anymore. It is the second regathering. The first regathering was after the Babylonian captivity. The second one's been waiting a long time. Back to Zechariah chapter 9. We're up to verse 12. Return to the stronghold. Messiah is sitting in Jerusalem. In the temple on the temple mount. And that is the stronghold, for he is its defense. You prisoners of hope, that is the prisoners who have maintained the hope and the desire to see Messiah come. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. That's the promise of Isaiah chapter 61. So let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 61. All that... Israel has lost through the destructions and the captivities and the judgments. God's not just going to restore what was lost, but he's going to increase it. 
Remember Isaiah 61 is where the Lord was reading when he went into the synagogue in Nazareth after he defeated Hasatan. Isaiah 61, 1 through 7. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Messiah read these words and said, that's about me. To preach good tidings to the poor. Is that the poor financially or is it the humble in spirit? And it sent me to heal the brokenhearted, those who are brokenhearted over their sins. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where Messiah stopped reading because the next phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God, that's the day of the Lord. And that wasn't yet in Messiah's day, it was 2,000 years later. To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins and shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers, that's the Gentile believers, shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have what? Double honor. That's what Zechariah is talking about. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Which festival does that point to? Tabernacles. Now, well, I see we've run out of time. We'll have to pick up in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13, next time, Lord willing.